and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, saying, Come and see. Thunder Radio with Christian J. Pento. Okay, praise the Lord, you guys, and welcome. I'm Chris Pinto. This is Noise of Thunder Radio. Today on the show, we are going to talk about, well, we're going to talk about this Asbury Revival that has gone on now for several weeks and has it appears the whole thing is coming to an end or at least it's filtering down and uh, there, there there do seem to be some hangers on uh, but but the greater body of people that were showing up the big giant crowds seems to have died down by now uh, I have wanted to do a program on this before now but I keep waiting to see how this whole thing is going to play out. At first, I thought, wow, what a neat idea. What a, if this is real, if this is a real revival, I think it's great if people are really coming together to worship the Lord and, uh, and, and to do what happens in a genuine revival. But let's, let's consider what a revival is. Uh, we have examples of revival in the Bible, okay? Uh, the best one I can think of is in the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapters 9 and verse 10, when they're coming back to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem, and the Jewish people have been scattered away from their homeland because they sinned against the Lord. And God punished them as he said he would. Now they are coming back and... Ezra is praying at one point, and he says he's confessing their sins in verse 13, uh, chapter 9, verse 13. He says, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such deliverance as this, because now they're being brought back, right? Should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? And he goes on, right? And in verse 15, he says, O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. So Ezra is confessing their sin, acknowledging the sin of his people. And then in, in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. And then it goes on from there. And so I just wanted to read those few verses so we can have some idea of what a biblical example of a revival would be. When it begins with the acknowledgement of sin, 
the acknowledgement that you've sinned against the Lord. And I think that this can happen at a personal level, that, that individuals can have moments of revival or times of revival in their faith. I think probably many times of revival. Every time you, you make a mistake and you stumble and so on and you, you get down on your knees or on your face before the Lord and, and you cry out to God, you pray, you seek the Lord, and uh, then the Lord strengthens you and gets you turned about on the right path according to his word, and you get up and you trust God, you trust the grace of God. But it can also happen at a national level, at, at, at a level of a body of people, I think. And it's certainly possible that something like that could have happened at Asbury, at the university there. But is that really what was going on? And the indicators are right now, at least from what I'm seeing and hearing, based on what's being reported, that's not really what was going on. What was going on was there was uh, a little bit of preaching that kind of started the whole thing out. It wasn't anything like the prayer of Ezra. And then they began this singing of various gospel songs, many of which are familiar to anyone who goes to church on a regular basis. And, and if you have any kind of a worship band there, you've probably heard many of those songs. But the songs of themselves and just singing songs continually that can give people kind of an emotional high that's not necessarily revival, just because it went on for a long time. And I've, I've become suspicious of this whole thing because remember the Black Lives Matter mobs that went on and on? They were out there shouting and screaming for months. That whole thing went on. And they're yelling Black Lives Matter and all these slogans and all this other kind of stuff. And it just went on and on and on. But then it turned out that the whole thing was planned before it began. Now, we don't yet fully know. There, there are some reports that this Asbury revival may have somehow or other been engineered. I've not yet seen that proven out. Uh, there are a few things. There's a few items that, that I want to talk about on the program. Uh, one is the issue of feminism. The fact that they ordain female ministers there. And I would have to say that these female ministers are not just women who want to preach in a church. These are very feminist. I would even call them feminazi type women, uh, women who are anti-male. They're, they're you know, preaching against the patriarchy. They're, they're these kind of women. They're woke women who are denouncing the whole concept of male leadership in the church and that this is not really a biblical teaching. In fact, we're going to listen to some audio here shortly from one of the speakers at Asbury University, a woman who denounced the whole idea of patriarchy, patriarchal male leadership, where her testimony is that this is really a pagan practice. It's not biblical. And that it's a sin. She refers to the sin of patriarchy. We're going to be listening to that here on the program. But before we do, I want to address a tweet. I think this is a tweet that went around and was presented by somebody named Elijah at Edward 
Versailles, that's the name, and the message being put out said, quote, and it, it had to do with this Asbury revival. It said, quote, day eight, and my seminary friends are still leading worship. Did you know POC, people of color, women, and queer students have been leading worship all eight days? Both student bodies have lended themselves into being us toward the throne of God. Okay, end quote. That's what the tweet says. It makes reference to people of color, women, and queer students leading the worship. Now, when I saw that, there were people who questioned whether or not it was genuine. And uh, there is a podcast called the Doctrine Matters podcast, okay, that talks about this. And I don't know much about the podcast, although the presenter seems to be biblically inclined. In other words, he believes the Bible is the word of God. And, and from everything I heard him say, he has a biblical worldview, but he exposes the fact that the tweet was sent out by a guy named Elijah Drake, who is one of the students. And he presents himself as quote, celibate SSA slash gay student at Asbury Theological Seminary. Okay. That's how he presents himself celibate SSA gay student at Asbury Theological. So he's openly presenting himself as, quote, a gay student, that he is gay. Uh, now, the reason I find this very interesting is because you've got other stories out there, like this one at dissenter.com, where the headline says, quote, woke evangelical org claims Asbury Revival is moving school toward affirming queers. That that's supposedly part of the outcome of this is going to be affirming the LGBT movement. And this we we've been we've been watching this happen in churches all over the country and really in different parts of the world for years now. And uh, this what what they may very well be doing, and I would call this at this point, I'd have to call it Jesuit theater. The Jesuits are masters of this kind of thing. What they may be looking for is some claim of the miraculous. This, this, I mean, this has gone on with the uh, with just Roman Catholicism for hundreds of years. You'd be amazed if you just started studying all of the claimed miracles of the various Catholic saints throughout history, and those miracles supposedly affirm that that person is a true saint. So it could be, if this is all true, that what they are looking for is some element of the miraculous to happen. Some miraculous revival takes place. And as a result of it, they claim that this affirms that, yes, uh, LGBT, the whole concept of being a gay Christian, should be accepted by the church. But in the meantime, what they have, and there's this pattern here, apparently this, uh, the woman who's over the Asbury Hall there is named Jessica Lagrone, Jessica Lagrone. She is the Dean of the chapel at Asbury Theological Seminary. Uh, she quotes, for example, she quotes a feminist named Beth Allison Barr, who we're going to listen to, uh, because she spoke there at the university. 
Jessica Legrone also quotes, I think tellingly, uh, a gay celibate priest named Wesley Hill. A gay celibate priest named Wesley Hill quotes in approval these individuals, uh, approving of them. She also quotes Pope Francis, you know, retweets Pope Francis, commentaries from the Pope, things like that. So you get a sense that, yes, she she is. And if you study her and, and more of her dialogue, she's very much a feminist herself and part of kind of a woke liberal feminist element at work there at Asbury. But this whole concept of the gay celibate, think about this now. Why would somebody introduce themselves as, quote, a gay celibate priest or a gay celibate Christian? Why do they need you to know that they're gay? And, and think about what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. They were that way, but they've been cleansed. They've been washed by the blood of Christ. They're a new creature. Can somebody who's identifying himself as gay, can he really be a new creature in Christ? All right, well, let's listen to part of the testimony. We're going to play a little bit of the testimony of uh, this guy this openly gay student, he's the one that did the tweet here talking about how his uh, fellow gays were leading worship there at Asbury. Let's listen to what he says. This is him speaking uh, before an audience at the university. Listen. I'm Elijah, senior communications and theology double major. I might as well give the SAU greeting. So I'm from Grand Rapids. I live in the Saito K house. Come on. And I'm not exactly sure still what God holds in store for me after college. Now, I know, I know, usually if I was getting up to speak, I'd have a queue of quips, memes, and lame jokes. But tonight is a bit different and it's a bit serious. And I'm going to take a drink of water because my mouth is very dry. In 2012, like seven years ago, my dad sat me down to have one of those super awkward porn talks where he wanted to impress onto me the importance of respect in my thoughts towards women. The conversation was tense and eventually I burst out sobbing. In between gasps for air, I finally said what I'd been thinking about for a long time. It doesn't even matter. I'm not attracted to girls. I'm only attracted to guys. And with that sentence, as a conservative Christian freshman in high school, I verbally, verbally acknowledged something for the first time I had only ever been attracted to guys. This is really hard to say. Even now I'm standing before you all, I'm quivering with anxiety. And preparing for tonight, I have been completely spent and stressed. I'm sharing an aspect of me that has deeply affected my life and often comes at great cost. I suppose this is my first time ever giving my whole testimony, synthesizing together two very different parts of me that I haven't put together before. So I want to share this story. The one where a boy born into a Christian family realizes he's attracted to the same sex and he might be that dreaded three-letter word, gay. There's a lot of pain in it, but also a lot of hope. Tonight isn't about 
arguing or defending certain theology. It's about stepping into a place of understanding and being honest. So I'm going to put my cards on the table right now. I'm a celibate gay Christian. That means that I am a Christian attracted to the same sex that upholds the traditional sexual ethic. The traditional sexual ethic basically says that sexual expression is for the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. I believe that this is a biblical doctrine, but my point is not to argue for it right now. My goal tonight in being vulnerable is to maybe offer a path ahead for the church to push towards deeper community and self-sacrifice. Okay, so there you hear, this this is one of the students at Asbury. This is one of the guys who was apparently involved in leading uh, at least some of the worship that was going on. And apparently there were other members of the LGBT community there uh, that were taking part in all of this, at least according to the tweet. That's the impression that I have. Uh, All the details, I suppose, are going to be published more thoroughly as the, the, the fallout and the wake of this whole thing unfolds even further because a lot of people are talking about it all over the country and probably in different parts of the world. Okay, so we can confirm that, yes, the guy who posted that tweet was a member of the gay community. He's cl- calling himself a gay celibate Christian, supposedly. Uh, is that really possible? Is that possible? If a person is a true Christian, it means that they are a born-again child of God. They're a new creature in Christ. That new creature is not going to identify as a homosexual. Again, as the Apostle Paul says, such were some of you. If you were guilty of adultery or fornication before you became a born-again believer, you're not going to introduce yourself as a fornicating Christian who's celibate. You're not going to introduce yourself that way. Why? Because that was your old life. You have put that aside. You have put off the old man with his deeds and behold, the new man is to come forth by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. All right, let's go to our commercial break. When we come back, we are going to listen to some more audio from the feminist side of this whole Asbury revival movement, so-called revival. Uh, But we will talk about that when we come back right after this. Adullam Films presents a stunning new documentary, The True Christian History of America, exploring the Bible-based Christian origins of the early American view of freedom, tracing the principles of liberty back to England and the Great Reformation. For many years, our schools have taught that the founding of our republic was from the deists or the Enlightenment in France. But is that truly the case? Did the Enlightenment first declare no taxation without representation or trial by jury? Were they the champions of freedom of speech or of the press or the right to bear arms? And why did Samuel Adams declare that the reign of political Protestantism would commence just before signing the Declaration of Independence? Filmed on location in both the United States and Europe, The True Christian History of America is now available at adullamfilms.com. That's adullamfilms.com. 
Now available at noiseofthunderradio.com. That's noiseofthunderradio.com. Adullam Films presents an exciting new documentary, Bridge to Babylon, part three in an award-winning series on the untold history of the Bible. Dr. Jack Moorman calls it a masterful presentation of what is the single most important issue facing Christians today, the defense of the Bible as the Word of God. Why was the Bible changed in 1881? Why have so many churches abandoned biblical inerrancy? And what direction are scholars taking the scriptures today? Learn the truth in Bridge to Babylon, the sequel to A Lamp in the Dark and Tares Among the Wheat. Bridge to Babylon is now available at noiseofthunderradio.com. That's noiseofthunderradio.com. Noise of Thunder Radio. Okay, we are back. Praise the Lord, you guys. I'm Chris Pinto. This is Noise of Thunder Radio. Today on the show, we are talking about the controversial Asbury Revival. Now, listen, if you're one of those people out there that you saw individual clips of this and you thought that it seemed like it could be a genuine revival, please know that you are not alone. I have friends who I believe are very sincere Christians, and they thought much the same thing. Of course, they didn't know a lot of these details. Many people did not know some of these underlying issues that were going on. And a lot of sincere believers who are, you know, who, who do have, I think, pretty good discernment and are careful not to just approve of something, uh, thought, well, you know, wouldn't it be great if there was a revival? And uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it, ordinarily, you wouldn't think it was a bad thing at all that you, you've got thousands of people who want to praise and worship God. That of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. What we're questioning here is, is there perhaps some ulterior motives here? You know, we have to remind ourselves of the New Testament and what we have. We have warnings from the Lord Jesus Christ about wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, we have the story of Judas, how Judas uh, said toward Mary when she was uh, uh, anointing the Lord's feet with uh, an ointment, and he says, should not this have been sold and the money given to the poor? And the scripture says this, he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he was the holder of the poor bag and he bore what was in it. So is there anything wrong with caring for the poor? No. But was that what motivated Judas? No, that's not what motivated Judas. Judas had a hidden agenda. Okay? So there's nothing wrong with worshiping the Lord. The question is, is there a hidden agenda here? Uh, is the music, and the, because remember, the, the, the songs that they're singing are not spontaneous songs that these people came up with while they were worshiping God. These are songs that are written by other people. They're well-known works of music in the Christian community. Anybody could sing them who had any kind of musical ability. So was that music and the ongoing praise and worship was that kind of like a sheep's clothing 
that the wolves wanted to cloak themselves and each other in so that they could give the impression that they're having a true godly revival here. Well, time will tell. I think there are certainly some warning signs. There's warning signs. In fact, another ministry online, they have a headline here, Asbury Revival, question mark, Feminist LGBTQ Charismatic Awakening. That seems to be their overall take on it. I have not listened to their show, but I'm just showing you that there are other people out there exercising discernment on this uh, who are questioning exactly what it is that's going on. And this whole feminist side of this thing, you have to understand the feminist side of it is not just women preaching. It's very, very anti-male. It's not just, you know, hey, we're women. We want to tell people about God. No, it's anti-hostility toward men, hostility toward what the Bible says about the roles of men and women. And that brings us to something that I think is very important. You've got to go study this, quote, pastor, teacher, author, and speaker, Jessica Lagrone, the dean of the chapel at Asbury Theological. You've got to study her. And then go and look at this associate professor of preaching, associate professor of preaching at Asbury Theological Seminary, Dr. Stacy R. Minger, M-I-N-G-E-R, and a woman, of course. The Reverend Dr. Stacy R. Minger is associate professor of preaching. What did the Apostle Paul say? I suffer not a woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man. The, the, the feminist agenda at Asbury is almost entirely about women preaching and definitely usurping the authority of men. That is their goal in no uncertain way. So it's not just, hey, we want to be included. No, we want to usurp the authority of men. Yeah, 1 Timothy 2.12, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So that's what the Apostle Paul says. And of course, there's other passages as well. There's no question that these women resent, resent the clear, straightforward teaching about the roles of men and women in the New Testament. Well, let's listen to the introduction of this speaker named Beth Allison Barr. Now, you can look up Beth Allison Barr. She is not a professor or teacher at Asbury. She was a guest speaker there. But two of the history professors, one man, one woman, who, I, who appear to be married because they have the same last name, they came up together to introduce her when she was speaking at Asbury. You have to hear what they said about her, and then we will play selected clips from the speech that she gave while she was there. So you can get a sense for sort of the character and nature of what goes on at Asbury. Now, it's important to remember what I'm about to play you was not going on at the revival. So don't get confused on that. These are 
other things that happened there at Asbury University. Okay, so let's listen to this man and woman, these two professors at Asbury, introduce this guest speaker. Listen. Good morning. I'm Lisa Weaver-Swartz, and I teach sociology. I'm David Swartz, and I teach history. Our speaker today has credentials so impressive that it takes both of us to introduce her. Dr. Beth Allison Barr is Professor of History and Associate Dean in the Baylor University Graduate School. She is a historian of medieval Europe, women, and religion, and her work has been featured by such media as National Public Radio, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, and The Anxious Bench, a Pathos blog where Beth and I and half a dozen other historians post. She is also the author of the best-selling book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. This book contends that patriarchy, or what the Christian church sometimes calls male headship, is not rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but rather that it is a product of secular practices and pagan cultures. Okay, so this is part of the introduction of this woman who is like a radical, radical uh, feminist, Dr. Beth Allison Barr. And I'm going to play you some of her teaching just so you can see how, you know, the, 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 the feminist hostility that comes across in her teaching. And this is all stuff that happens there at Asbury University. And the more you begin to look into Asbury and the, and the women who are in charge and this kind of thing, it's like the whole theology school is, is infiltrated with this feminism. That's why they're bringing this woman there. But I wanted to just read, remember now, this uh, sociology professor just said that this is a, a pagan practice. It's a product of pagan culture. It's not according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not according to the New Testament, apparently. Well, let's just look at another quote now from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, where he says, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Okay? So this is the what the New Testament teaches. Now listen to what this woman, Dr. Beth Allison Barr, listen to her analysis of the biblical story of Abraham and his interaction with Hagar, uh, together, remember, Ab Abraham and Hagar, they have Ishmael before Isaac is born. And so this is, again, part of the commentary. This is after they've introduced Dr. Beth Allison Barr. She comes up, she gives some introductory comments, and then she talks about this story in Genesis. Here's what she says. Listen. Reading a text before it finally really sinks into you what's going on. And when the text, the story of Genesis 16 sinks in, it's a pretty terrible story. Stories about a powerless woman who is raped, abused, and abandoned. Just think about it. 
And no matter how we try to make that prettier than it is and try to pretend that slaves in the past were treated better than slaves in 19th century America, it's not true. The condition of slavery places a human being under the power of another human being. And that's what Hagar was. She was under the power of Abram and Sarai. She's given to Abram for the sole purpose of sex. She's not asked about this. She has no choice. Okay. So basically what she's just said is that Abraham who is not just the the patriarch of Isaac and then Jacob, Jacob, who's renamed Israel. Abraham is also the great father of faith throughout the New Testament. Those who are of faith are counted as sons of faithful Abraham. Paul says, God had before preached the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The seed of Abraham is Christ. Okay, she's saying that Abraham was a rapist. That's what she's saying. She's interpreting this whole story to mean that Abraham now was a rapist. The whole story is really about this woman, Hagar, who was victimized because she was a bondwoman. But the idea that she was forced against her will is nowhere contained in the story. She's assuming things about Hagar's condition. Uh, she's assuming that Hagar was forced, even though there's, there's nothing that says that she was necessarily forced or that this was against her will. Let's look at, this is where, you know, having a King James Bible, I think is a little bit beneficial because the way the text actually reads is now Sari, Abram's wife, bear him no children. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. So notice in the King James, Hagar is called a handmaid. Okay. When you get to these other translations, they don't call her a a handmaid. They call her a slave. Okay. NIV calls her a slave. New Living Translation says servant. Uh, The ESV says servant. Maid servant. That's the Berean Standard Bible. Maid servant, New King James. The NASB says Egyptian slave woman. Uh, many of the translations, however, say that she was a maid, a maid, a servant woman, Egyptian maid. And others do use the word slave. There's no question. But the idea that she was a powerless woman and uh, the comment that she makes that she was only given to Abraham, quote, for sex is simply not true. She was given to Abraham because Sarah could not have a child and she wanted the promised seed to be born. And so she thought, well, maybe through this handmaid, Hagar. So Hagar is actually being given a prominent position in the household. Uh, She's not uh, this powerless woman. It's just that she's trying to interpret these things based upon a modern American woman looking backward in time thousands of years and trying to interpret what was going on in the mind of this Egyptian handmaid. Let me read you commentary from Gill's exposition of the entire Bible. Here's what John Gill says about this. 
She had, quote, she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. Gill says, quote, no doubt, but she had many, but this was a principal one that might be over others and was chiefly entrusted with the care and management of family affairs under her mistress. She might be the daughter of an Egyptian born in Abram's house, as Eleazar was the son of a Syrian of Damascus born there also. Or she might be one of the maidservants Pharaoh, king of Egypt, gave to Abram in Genesis 12:16. The Jews have a tradition that she was a daughter of Pharaoh, a daughter of Pharaoh, who, when he saw the wonders done for Sari, said, It is better that my daughter should be a handmaid in this house than a mistress in another, and therefore gave her to Sari. Okay, now what that's referring to there is the episode that happens when uh, Pharaoh takes Sarah, Sari, to be one of his wives, not knowing that she was Abraham's wife. She thought, or he thought, that she was Abraham's sister, because that's what Abraham said. But then the scripture says that Pharaoh's household was plagued because of Sari. Uh, and then Pharaoh figures out that this is Abraham's wife. And he says, well, why didn't you tell us she's your wife, etc.? And the story goes on from there. Of course, he restores Sari to Abraham. But then he marvels, of course, that God did all of this for Abraham and Sari. You know, God was overlooking her, protecting her. And so that's the reference here. So this is somehow the Jews from that had this tradition that she was one of Pharaoh's daughters. Now, we honestly don't know. The text doesn't tell us any more than what we're reading right out of the scripture. But what this feminist author is reading into the text is not taking into account the various possibilities and, and the information that's been handed down through, throughout history, and especially when you have the Jews having a tradition. Usually a tradition is based on something. There, there's some grain of truth to it somewhere, whatever it may be. Uh, but it, it makes all the sense in the world that Hagar would have been given to Abraham during their interaction with uh, Pharaoh in the earlier chapters there in Genesis, because initially, Sari was thought to be so beautiful that when Pharaoh took her initially, he sends all of these gifts. It says, Abram uh, acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants and camels. It's like Pharaoh was, was sending gifts to Abram to say, in compensation for taking the woman he believed was his sister, which turned out to be his wife. So that all makes sense. Now, who Hagar was, though, was she one of the daughters of Pharaoh? It's possible. But the, the picture that this feminist author is deliberately trying to take, is trying to create this whole victim identity for the women in the Bible so that she can uh, assault the whole concept of patriarchy. I'm going to play another clip of this woman, Dr. Beth Allison Barr, who again was one of the honored guests at Asbury University. And... This is where she talks about 
the sin of patriarchy and basically says that modern evangelical Christianity is guilty of this terrible sin. Uh, but I want you to hear it in her own words. So here it is. Listen. But yet, my argument is exactly what Lisa said this morning, that evangelical Christians have succumbed to the sin of patriarchy. We have become complicit in the oppression of women. We've tried to make it look pretty. We've dressed it up with words like biblical womanhood and complementarian. We've even packaged it in pink Bibles and sold it in marriage sermons. But at the end of the day, oppression is oppression and patriarchy is patriarchy. Patriarchy places power in the hands of men and takes it away from women. Patriarchy teaches men that women rank lower than they do. As I explain in the first chapter of my book, if men, simply because of their sex, have the potential to preach and exercise spiritual authority over a church congregation, but women, simply because of their sex, do not, then that gives all men power over all women. It isn't just different roles. It is a system that always puts women under the power of men. All right, so notice what she's doing there. She's, she's not just talking about how, uh, you know, hey, let's examine women like Deborah in the Bible, you know, one of the judges of ancient Israel. Let's look at Queen Esther. Let's look to biblical examples of strong women, maybe even women like Jael in the book of Judges, who takes the nail and the hammer and pounds a nail in the, you know, in the temples of Sisera while he's sleeping and kills him, the enemy commander. That's not what she's saying. She is specifically attacking the New Testament teachings and really Old Testament teachings as well, because you don't really have female preachers that are going into the temple of God and teaching. I mean, women are not teaching from the Torah in the Old Testament. And so you have the Apostle Paul specifically saying, let your women keep silence in the churches. And I suffer not a woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man, etc., she is specifically attacking those very specific commands and instructions in the New Testament itself. That's what she's addressing. She's saying if men have the right to preach and women don't, it places women under the authority of men. And yes, it does, because women are under the authority of men, one way or the other. Now, the danger of what she's doing and I believe this is very Jesuitical and very Marxist. And it's very, very dangerous for women and really all of Western civilization. What they are trying to do is to systematically, this is part of the process of effeminizing men in the Western world. And if you just look at what's going on in Western Europe right now, for example, Sweden, the government of Sweden has boasted itself to be the world's first feminist government, maybe the, world, maybe the first feminist government in Europe. Uh, in either case, it has also been called the rape capital of Europe. So they've got these feminists in charge of the government 
well, then why are all the women getting raped? Why is their their rate of sexual assault against women higher than anywhere else in Europe? And some even call it the rape capital of the world uh, because you have a very high rate of sexual assault now that the women are in charge, right? These feminists. But why are they not protecting anyone? Here's a story from 2019. Sweden's feminist government orders not to investigate rapes. Okay. Another story. Tears of Sweden. Why is the rape rate higher than that of India becoming the capital of rape? Okay. Another story about Sweden. So men are ordained by God to be the leaders and the defenders of women and children. That is what God has ordained. Uh, God says in Genesis uh, to Eve, your desire shall be toward your husband, but he shall rule over thee. The men protect the women. But when you take the men out of power, you put women in charge. Are women going to protect other women? Typically, they don't. Uh, The effeminized government in England has allowed these Muslim rape gangs to systematically rape more than a million English girls over the last 20 plus years. That's what's reported in the the book, Easy Meat. That's quoting a UK politician. Uh, CBN did a story on this uh, a number of years ago, Christian Broadcasting Network. You can look it up online, watch it on YouTube. More than a million. This is what happens when a government and a country is effeminized, where the men are beaten down and they are you know, mentally castrated, if you will, to become effeminized. They're, they're told, well, you need to give in to the women. You need to become more like women. They're encouraging men to be effeminized. And really what they're doing is attacking Christian men in the Western world, trying to effeminize Christian men, because the Muslims will not put up with any of this. They don't listen to any of this stuff. In their mosques and, and in their communities, Uh, The women are in submission, and there's no question about that. So Islam is a very, very different situation. And so what's happening is they brought in these millions and millions of Muslims into Western Europe, 50 million plus. And these Muslim men are very, very aggressive, and they are pursuing the assault and subjugation of Christian women and children. And the men in the West, the Christian men who should be standing up and defending these women and children are not doing it because they are being undermined and manipulated psychologically uh, and also through, through the laws. I mean, they've disarmed most of the countries in Western Europe. England lost their gun rights back in 1997. That's the same year that these rape gangs are said to have exploded in England itself. Now, of course, there were there were still those grooming gangs even before that. But from the stories I've seen, there seemed to be some kind of a an accelerated level of assaults against the uh, young girls over there that began in 1997. And that's the same year that they disarmed most of the English. Okay, took away their gun rights. So what this does is it weakens the men. It tells the men you can't be men. You can't be that strong, masculine character. You've got to be more 
soft and weaker and yield and let women be in charge and all this other kind of stuff. But women are not the defenders and protectors of civilization. That's not what they do. There's no record of a, an army of women who defeat an army of men in war. That doesn't happen. And so women in the West, the reality is they have to make a decision. They have to be aware of what's going on and how they're being deceived. Because when God says he shall rule over thee, that's going to happen one way or the other. Men are going to rule over women. Women are not going to be in charge. Not really. If women were in charge of Sweden, the Muslim rape gangs would not be raping women every day. That wouldn't be going on. No, he shall rule over thee. So women are going to be governed by men one way or the other. Women in the West have to decide whether or not it's going to be Christian men who actually believe the Bible, believe the word of God and the commandments of God, and then treat women with the respect and the honor and the love that God commands. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You realize that the example of Christ is the foundation of all the chivalry in the Western world. The, 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 the fact that, that men in the West are taught that you defend your wife and your family, you lay down your life for their sake, that is after the example of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Not all men necessarily think that way in other parts of the world. That's a very, very Western idea. But unfortunately, the concept is being abused and manipulated in a way that is not good. Not good at all. Uh, at the same time as men, we've got to recognize, you know, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the hireling, when he sees the wolf come, he turns and he runs. Why? Because he's a hireling. The sheep are not his own. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. He's going to fight those wolves and drive them off. So that is the role of men in the church. That is the role of men in society. And uh, no, we're, we're not called to make women equal in, I mean, in a sense, women are equal, uh, but there's a place for men and there's a place for women. And saying that, you know, this woman trying to deny the fact that God has given different roles to men and women, she's simply denying the word of God. She's simply denying the word of God. And what she's doing, the danger of what she's doing is what we're watching in Western Europe right now. That's the danger, because that's the, the ultimate end, the ultimate conclusion of all of this effeminizing manipulation and you can add to it the LGBT movement. You can add to it uh, telling men they need to be putting on dresses and, and lipstick and all this other kind of stuff. The effeminization movement, it has two sides as I see it. One side is trying to effeminize the men. The other side is trying to masculinize the women so that the women become more domineering so that the men sort of you know become these beta males who are not willing to stand up and fight. And that is the twofold challenge before us. So uh, all this now, we're, we bring all of this back. We're talking about all this stuff. Back to the Asbury revival. Was this a real revival? In, in a place like this? Well, 
Uh, I mean, maybe if they come out and they repent of their endorsement of homosexuality and LGBT, if they come out and they realize and, and, and repent of all this feminist stuff and, and allowing speakers like this to come into their university and attack the biblical standard, if they turn away from all of that and humble themselves before God and confess that they've rebelled against God's clear commandments for the church and for his people, then maybe it could be said there's some evidence of revival. Something tells me, however, that the, the, the aftermath of all of this is going to be professing very, very different conclusions. But we'll have to wait and see. We, we just don't know right now what the, the aftermath of this whole thing is going to be. Uh, if, if they start trying to argue that they have some kind of supernatural endorsement from God to be pushing and promoting these liberal left-wing ideas in the church, then I think people are going to start to look I mean, there's already people who are alleging that this thing was planned. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, people are making the comments online, uh, but we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see where those comments end up. I'm still looking into it. Uh, I first saw the LGBT comment, and that raised some eyebrows, along with the feminist comments. And then I started looking into it, and there's this whole pattern of fem the feminism is overwhelming. Uh, there was one article that was written that talked about how they ordained women there and that that was unbiblical. Of course, we agree to that. I did not realize when I read that article at first that it wasn't just that they ordain women, but there's this very hardcore feminist ideology that is promoted there. It's This is hardcore stuff. When you're attacking very clear biblical commands and then somehow or other denying that what the Bible says is really what the Bible says. You're talking about outright rebellion, but they do the same thing with the, uh, the LGBT stuff. They, they argue that supposedly the Bible nowhere condemns homosexual behavior or that because Jesus did not specifically mention it, that means you can't necessarily believe that it's wrong supposedly. Now, those of us who believe in the whole counsel of God, well, of course, we, we believe those are completely bogus arguments. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for instruction, for reproof, for doctrine, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So we embrace the whole counsel of God. We embrace the whole Bible. Praise the Lord. All right, brethren, that is going to do it for us today. That is our show. We are going to stop it there, but we will be back next time as the Lord leads us. Until then, God bless you guys. I'm Chris Pinto, and you've been listening to Noise of Thunder Radio. Noise of Thunder Radio.